Chapter Six of A Silent Witness by R. Alston Freeman. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Anna Simon. Chapter Six: A Council of War. I awoke somewhat late on the following morning. Indeed, I was but half awake when there came a somewhat masterful and peremptory tap at my bedroom door, followed by the appearance in the room of a rather tall gentleman of some thirty years of age. I should have diagnosed him instantly as a doctor by his self-possessed proprietary manner of entering, but he left me no time for guessing as to his identity. "'Good morning, Jardine,' he said briskly, jingling the keys and small change in his trousers' pockets. "'My name is Jervis, second violin in the Thorndyke Orchestra. I'm in charge here, pro tem. How are you feeling?' "'Oh, I'm all right. I was just going to get up. You needn't trouble about the practice. I'm quite fit.' "'Glad to hear it,' said Jervis. "'But you'd better keep quiet all the same. My orders are explicit, and I know my place too well to disobey. Thorndyke's instructions were that you are not to make any visits or go abroad until after the inquest.' "'Inquest?' I exclaimed. "'Yes. He's coming here at four o'clock to hold an inquiry into the circumstances that led to your being locked up in a cellar, and until then I'm to look after the practice and keep an eye on you.' "'What time do you expect the offspring of the Flittermouse?' "'Who?' I demanded. "'Batson. He's coming back today, isn't he?' "'Yes. About six o'clock tonight.' "'Then you'll be able to clear out. So much the better. The neighbourhood doesn't seem very wholesome for you.' "'I suppose I can do the surgery work,' said I. "'You'd better not. Better follow Thorndyke's instructions literally. But you can tell me about the patients and help me to dispense. And that reminds me. But a person named Samway called just now, a rather fine-looking woman, reminded me of a big, sleek tabby-cat. She wouldn't say what she wanted. Do you know anything about her?' "'I expect she came about her account. But she'll have to see Batson. I told her so only a night or two ago.' "'Very well, then,' said Jervis. "'Then I'll be off now, and you take things easy, and just think over what happened last night so as to be ready for Thorndyke.' With this he bustled away, leaving me to rise and breakfast at my leisure. His advice to me to think over the events of the previous night was rather superfluous. The experience was not one that I was likely to forget. To have escaped from death by the very slenderest chance was in itself a matter to occupy one's thoughts pretty completely, apart from the horrible circumstances. And then there was the mystery in which the whole affair was enveloped, a mystery which utterly baffled any attempt to penetrate it turn it over as I would, and it was hardly out of my thoughts for a minute at a time all day. No glimmer of light could I perceive, no faintest clue to any explanation of that hideous and incomprehensible crime. At four o'clock punctually to the minute, Dr. Thorndyke arrived, and, having quickly looked me over to see that I was none the worse for my adventure, proceeded to business. "'Have you finished the visits, Jervis?' he asked. "'Yes, and send off all the medicine. There's nothing more to do until six. "'Then,' said Thorndyke, "'we might have a cup of tea in the consulting-room, and talk this affair over. "'I'm rather taking possession of you, Jardine,' he added. "'But I think we ought to see where we are quite clearly, even if we decide finally to hand the case over to the police. "'Don't you agree with me?' "'Certainly,' I agreed.' highly flattered by the interest he was taking in my affairs. Naturally, I should like to get to the bottom of the mystery. "'So should I,' said he. "'And to that end, 
I propose that you give us a completely circumstantial account of the whole affair. I have had a talk with your very intelligent little maid, Maggie, and now I want to hear what happened after she left you. I don't think I have much to tell that you don't know, said I. However, I will take up the story where Maggie left off. And I proceeded to describe the events in detail, much as I have related them to the reader. Thorndyke listened to my story with profound attention, making an occasional memorandum, but not uttering a word until I had finished. Then, after a rapid glance through his memoranda, he said, "'You spoke of a note that was handed in to you. Have you got that note?' "'I left it on the writing-table, and it's probably there still.' "'Yes, here it is.' I brought it over to the little table on which our tea was laid, and handed it to him and as he took it from me, with the dainty carefulness of a photographer handling a wet plate, I noted mentally that the habit of delicate manipulation contracted in a laboratory makes itself evident in the most trifling of everyday actions. "'I see,' he remarked, turning the envelope over and scrutinizing it minutely, "'that this is addressed to Dr. H. Jardine. It appears, then, that he knows your Christian name.' Can you account for that? No, I can't. The only letter I've had here was addressed Dr. Jardine, and I've signed no certificates or other documents. He made a note of my answer, and, drawing the missive from its envelope, read it through. The handwriting, he remarked, looks disguised rather than illiterate, and the diction is inconsistent. The blatantly incorrect adverb at the end does not agree with the rest of the phraseology and the correct punctuation. As to the signature, we may neglect that, unless you are acquainted with anyone in these parts of the name of Parker. I am not, said I. Very well. Then, if you will allow me to keep this note, I will file it for future reference. Now I will ask you a few questions about this adventure of yours, which is really a most astonishing and mysterious affair. Even more mysterious, I may add, than it looks at the first glance. But we shall come to that presently. At the moment we are concerned with the crime itself, with a manifest attempt to murder you, and the circumstances that led up to it. And there are certain obvious questions that suggest themselves. The first is, can you give any explanation of this attempt on your life? No, I can't, I replied. It is a complete mystery to me. I can only suppose that the fellow was a homicidal lunatic. A homicidal lunatic, said Thorndyke, is the baffled investigator's last resource, but we'd better not begin supposing at this stage. Let us keep strictly to facts. You do not know of anything that would explain this attack on you. No. Then the next question is, had you any property of value on your person? No. Five pounds would cover the value of everything I had about me, including the instruments. Then that seems to exclude robbery as a motive. The next question is, does any person stand to benefit considerably by your death? Have you any considerable expectations in the way of bequests, reversions, or succession to landed property or titles? No, I replied with a faint grin. I shall come in for a thousand or two when my uncle dies, but I believe the London Hospital is the alternative legatee, and I suppose we would hardly suspect the hospital governors of this little affair. 
Otherwise, the only person who would benefit by my death would be the undertaker who got the contract to plant me. Thorndyke nodded and made a note of my answer. That, said he, disposes of the principal motives for premeditated murder. There remains the question of personal enmity. Not a common motive in this country. Have you, as far as you know, an enemy, or enemies, who might conceivably try to kill you? As far as I know, I have not an enemy in the world, or anyone even who would wish to do me a bad turn. Then, said Thorndyke, that seems to dispose of all the ordinary motives for murder, and I may say that I have only put these questions as a matter of routine precaution, ex abundantia cautely, as Jervis says when he is in a forensic mood, because certain other facts which I have learned seem to exclude any of these motives except, perhaps, robbery from the person. "'You haven't been long picking up those other facts,' remarked Jervis. "'Why, the affair only happened last night.' "'I've only made a few simple inquiries,' replied Thorndyke. "'This morning I called on Mr. Highfield, whose name, as solicitor and agent to the landlords, I copied from the notice on the gate at the works last night. He knows me slightly.' so I was able to get from him the information that I wanted. It amounts to this. About four months ago, a Mr. Gill wrote to him and offered a lump sum for the use of the mineral waterworks for six months. Highfield accepted the offer and drew up an agreement, as desired, granting Gill immediate possession of the premises and the small stock and plant of which the residue was to be taken back at a valuation by the landlords at the expiration of the term. I noted Gill's address, as it appeared on the agreement, and sent my man, Polton, to make inquiries. The address is that of a West Kensington lodging house at which Gill was staying when he signed the agreement. He had been there only three weeks. He left two days after the date of the agreement, and the landlady does not know where he went or anything about him. "'Sounds a bit fishy,' Jervis remarked. "'Did he tell Highfield what he wanted the premises for?' I understood that something was said about some assay work in connection with certain, or rather uncertain, mineral concessions. But, of course, that was no affair of Highfield's. His business was to get the rent, and, having got it, his interest in Mr. Gill lapsed. But you see the bearing of these facts. Gill's connection with these works does, as Jervis says, look a little queer, especially after what has happened. But, seeing that he made his arrangements four months ago, at a time when Jardine had no thought of coming into this neighbourhood, it is clear that those arrangements could have no connection with this particular attempt. Gill obviously did not take those works with the intention of murdering Jardine. He took them for some other purpose, quite possibly the purpose that he stated, and we must not assume that Gill was the perpetrator of this outrage at all. "'Could you identify the man who let you in?' "'No,' I replied, "'certainly not. "'I hardly saw him at all. "'The place was pitch dark, "'and whenever he struck a match "'he was either behind me "'or in front with his back to me. "'The only thing I could make out about him "'was that he had some sort of coarse "'wash-letter gloves on.' "'Ha!' exclaimed Thorndyke. "'Then we were right, Jervis.' I looked in surprise from one to the other of my friends, and was on the point of asking Thorndyke what he meant, when he continued. "'That closes another track. If you couldn't identify the man, 
a description of Gill, if we could obtain it, would not help us. We must begin at some other point. It seems to me, said Jervis, that we haven't much to go upon at all. We haven't much, agreed Thorndyke, but we still have something. We find that the motive of this attempt was apparently not robbery, nor the diversion of inheritable property, nor personal enmity. It must have been premeditated, but yet it could not have been planned more than a week in advance, for Jardine has only been in this neighbourhood for that time, and his coming was unexpected. The appearances very strongly suggest that the motive, whatever it was, has been generated recently, and probably locally, so we'd better make a start from that assumption. Is it possible, Jervis suggested, that this man Gill may be some sort of anarchist crank, or a sort of thug? It is actually conceivable that he may have taken these premises for the express purpose of having a secure place where he could perpetrate murders and conceal the bodies. It is quite conceivable, said Thorndyke, and when we go and look over the works, which I propose we do presently, we may as well bear the possibility in mind, but it is merely a speculative suggestion. To return to your affairs, Jardine, has your stay here been quite uneventful? Perfectly, I replied. No unusual or obscure cases? No injuries? No, nothing out of the common, I replied. No deaths? One, but the man died before I took over. Nothing unusual about that? Everything quite regular? Oh, perfectly, I answered and then, with a sudden qualm, as I recalled Batson's uncertainty as to the actual cause of death, I added, "'At least, I hope so.' "'You hope so?' queried Thorndyke. "'Yes, because it's too late to go into the question now. The man was cremated.' At this a singular silence fell. Both my friends seemed to stiffen in their chairs, and both looked at me silently but very attentively. Then Thorndyke asked, did you have anything to do with that case? Yes, I replied. I went with Batson to examine the body. And are you perfectly satisfied that everything was as it should be? I was on the point of saying yes, and then suddenly there arose before my eyes the vision of Mrs. Samway looking at me over Batson's shoulder with that strange, inscrutable expression and again I recalled her unexplained anger, and then her sudden change of mood. It had impressed me uncomfortably at the time, and it impressed me uncomfortably now. "'I don't know that I am, now that I come to think it over,' I replied. "'Why not?' asked Thorndyke. "'Well,' I said, a little hesitatingly, "'to begin with, I don't think the cause of death was quite clear.' Batson couldn't find anything definite when he attended the man, and I know that the patient's death came as quite a surprise. "'But surely,' exclaimed Thorndyke, "'he took some measures to find out the cause of death.' "'He didn't. He assumed that it was a case of fatty heart, and certified it as morbus cordis, and a man named O'Connor confirmed the certificate after examining the body.' "'After merely inspecting the exterior?' Yes. My two friends looked at one another significantly, and Thorndyke remarked, with a disapproving shake of the head, 
and this is what all the elaborate precautions amount to in practice. A case which might have been one of the crudest and boldest poisoning gets passed with hardly a pretense of scrutiny. And so it will always be. Routine precautions against the unsuspected are no precautions at all. That is the danger of cremation. It restores to the poisoner's security that he enjoyed in the old days when there were no such sciences as toxicology and organic chemistry, when it was impossible for him to be tripped up by an exhumation and an analysis. "'You don't think it likely that this was a case of poisoning, do you?' I asked. "'I know nothing about the case,' he replied, "'excepting that there was gross neglect in issuing the certificates. "'What do you think about it yourself? "'Looking back at the case, "'is there anything besides the uncertainty "'that strikes you as unsatisfactory?' I hesitated, and again the figure of Mrs. Samway rose before me with that strange, baleful look in her eyes. Finally, I described the incident to my colleagues. "'Mrs. Samway!' exclaimed Jervis. "'Is that the handsome Lucretia Borgia lady with the mongoose eyes who called here this morning? By Jove! Jardine, you're giving me the creeps!' "'I understand,' said Thorndyke, "'that you're making as if to feel the dead man's pulse.' "'Yes.' There is no doubt, I suppose, that he really was dead. None whatever. He was as cold as a fish, and besides there was quite distinct rigor mortis. That seems conclusive enough, said Thorndyke, but he continued to gaze at his open notebook with a profoundly speculative and thoughtful expression. It certainly looks, said Jervis, as if Jardine had either seen something or had been about to see something that he was not wanted to see, and the question is what that something could have been. "'Yes,' I agreed gloomily. "'That is what I have just been asking myself. "'There might have been a wound or injury of some kind, "'or there might have been the marks of a hypodermic needle on the wrist. "'I wish I knew what she meant by looking at me in that way.' "'Well,' said Jervis, "'we shall never know now. "'The grave gives up its secrets now and again, "'but the crematorium furnace never. "'Whether he died naturally or was murdered, Mr. Maddock is now a little heap of ashes, with no message for anyone this side of the Day of Judgment. Thorndyke looked up. "'That seems to be so,' said he. "'And really we have no substantial reasons for thinking that there was anything wrong. So we come back to your own affairs, Jardine, and the question is, what would you prefer to do?' "'In what respect?' I asked. "'In regard to this attempt on your life.' You have told us that you have not an enemy in the world, but it appears as if you had, and a very dangerous one, too. Now, would you like to put the case into the hands of the police, or would you rather that we kept our own counsel and looked into it ourselves? I should like you to decide that, said I. The reason that I ask, said Thorndyke, is this. The machinery of the police is adjusted to professional crime, burglary, coining, forgery, and so forth, and their methods are mostly based on information received. The professional crook is generally well known to the police, and when wanted for any particular job, can be found without much difficulty, and the information necessary for his conviction obtained from the usual sources. But in cases of obscure non-professional crime, the police are at a disadvantage." The criminal is unknown to them. 
there are no confederates from whom to get information. Consequently, they have no starting point for their inquiries. They can't create clues, and they, very naturally, will not devote time, labour and money to cases in which they have nothing to go on. Now, this affair of yours does not look like a professional crime. No motive is evident, and you can give no information that would help the police. I doubt if they would do much more than give you some rather disagreeable publicity, and they might even suspect you of some kind of imposture. "'Gad!' I exclaimed. "'That's just what they would do. It's what they did last time, and this affair would write me down in their eyes a confirmed mystery-monger.' "'Last time?' queried Thorndyke. "'What last time is that? Have there been any other attempts?' "'Not on me,' I replied. "'But I had an adventure one night about six or seven weeks ago that has made the Hampstead police look on me, I think, with some suspicion.' And here I gave my two friends a description of my encounter with the dead, or insensible, cleric in Millfield Lane, and my discoveries on the following morning. "'But, my dear Jardine!' Thorndyke exclaimed when I had finished. "'What an extraordinary man you are! It seems as if you could hardly show your nose out of doors without becoming involved in some dark and dreadful mystery.' "'Well,' said I, "'I hope I have now exhausted my gifts in that respect. I am not thirsting for more experiences. But what do you think about that Hampstead affair? Do you think I possibly have been mistaken? Could the man have been merely insensible, after all?' as the police suggested? Thorndyke shook his head. "'I don't think,' he replied, "'that it is possible to take that view. You see, the man had disappeared. Now, he could not have got away unassisted. In fact, he could not have walked at all. One would have to assume that some persons appeared directly after you left and carried him away, and that they appeared and retired so quickly as not to be overtaken by you on your return a few minutes later with the police. That is assuming too much. And then there are the traces which you discovered on the following day, which seem to suggest strongly that a body had been carried away to Kenwood. It is a thousand pities that you encountered that keeper. If you could have followed the tracks while they were fresh, you might have been able to ascertain whither it had been carried.' But now, to return to your latest experience, what shall we do? Shall we communicate with the police, or shall we make a few investigations on our own account? As far as I am concerned, I replied eagerly, a private investigation would be greatly preferable. But wouldn't it take up rather a lot of your time? Now, Jardine, you needn't apologize, said Jervis. Unless I'm much mistaken, my respected senior has struck soundings, as the nautical phrase has it. He has a theory of your case, and he would like to see it through. Isn't that so, Thorndyke? Well, Thorndyke admitted, I will confess that the case piques my curiosity somewhat. It is an unusual affair, and suggests some curious hypotheses which might be worth testing. So, if you agree, Jardine, that we make at least a few preliminary investigations, I suggest that, as soon as Batson returns, we three go over to the what the newspapers would call the scene of the tragedy and reconstitute the affair on the spot. And what about Batson? I asked. Shall we tell him anything? I think we must, said Thorndyke, if only to put him on his guard, for your unknown enemy may be his enemy too, 
At this moment the street door banged loudly, a quick step danced along the hall, and Batson himself burst into the room. "'Good Lord!' he exclaimed, halting abruptly at the door and gazing in dismay at our little council. "'What's the matter? Anything happened?' Thorndyke laughed as he shook the hand of his quondam pupil. "'Come, come, Batson,' said he. "'Don't make me out such a bird of ill omen. "'I was afraid something awkward might have occurred. "'Police job, or inquest, or something of that sort.' "'You weren't so very far wrong,' said Thorndyke. "'When you are at liberty, I'll tell you about it.' "'I'm at liberty now,' said Batson, "'dropping into a chair and glaring at Thorndyke through his spectacles. "'No scandal, I hope.' Thorndyke reassured him on this point, "'and gave him a brief account of my adventure.' and our proposed visit to the works, to which he listened with occasional ejaculations of astonishment and relief. "'By gum!' he exclaimed. "'What a mercy you got there in time! If you hadn't, there'd have been an inquest, and a devil of a fuss. I should never have heard the last of it. Ruined the practice, and worried me into a lunatic asylum. Oh, and about those works? I wouldn't go there if I were you.' "'Why not?' Thorndyke asked. "'Well, you may have to answer some awkward questions.' we don't want this affair to get about, you know. No use raising a dust. Rumpus of any kind plays the deuce with a medical practice. Thorndyke smiled at my principal's frank egoism. Jervis and I went over last night, said he, and had a hasty look around, and we found the place quite deserted. Probably it is so still. Then you won't be able to get in. How'd you get in last night? I happened to have a piece of stiff wire in my pocket. Thorndyke replied impassively. Ha! said Batson. Wire, eh? Picklock, in fact. I wouldn't, if I were you. Devil of a bobbery if anyone sees you. Hello, there goes the bell. Patient. Let him wait. Tisn't six yet, is it? Two minutes past, replied Thorndyke, rising and looking at his watch. Perhaps we'd better be starting, as it's now dark, and the business at the works, if there is any, is probably over for the day. "'Hang the works!' exclaimed Batson. "'I wouldn't go nosing about there. "'What's the good? "'Jardine's all right, and the chappie isn't likely to be on view. "'You'll only raise a stink for nothing "'and bring in a crowd of beastly reporters humming about the place. "'There's that damn bell again. "'Well, if you won't stay, perhaps you'll look me up some other time. "'Always delighted to see you. "'Jervis, too. "'You're not going, Jardine. "'I've got to settle up with you and hear your report.' "'I'll look in later,' said I, "'when you've finished the evening's work.' "'Right you are,' said Batson, "'opening the door and adroitly etching us out. "'Sorry you can't stay. "'Good night. "'Good night.' "'He shepherded us persuasively "'and compellingly down the hall, "'with a skill born of long practice "'with garrulous patience, "'and, having exchanged us on the doorstep "'for a stout woman with two children, "'returned into the house with his prey "'and was lost to sight.' End of chapter 6